Nike revealed its 30th version of the Just Do It advertisement poster campaign. This is the picture. Some of you have been following NFL football long enough and well enough, or just simply are culturally astute enough that you know exactly who that is. Colin Kaepernick. Ignited a cultural firestorm of a conversation when he, along with other NFL players, decided to kneel during the national anthem. The commissioner and the owners have chimed in on this. The president has chimed in on this. Cultural commentators, self-appointed, continue to chime in on this conversation. Two days ago, Twitter blew up when this ad first came out, as you could well imagine. And let the polarizing conversations begin. Those who want to demonize one who would kneel for a flag. And those who hold him up as a hero. It's interesting to watch these conversations as people get pushed into further and further different camps. It's just the latest polarization topic du jour on Twitter, and there'll be a new one tomorrow. And the camps become further delineated, more clearly articulated, more angry than they were before. What do you feel right now? Pay attention to your own sentiments. As we as followers of Jesus walk into moments like this, difficult cultural moments, how do you respond? What do you feel? I'm not here this morning to tell you what you are supposed to feel, but I do want to suggest one thing, and that is that I think the Christian church today has some things that we can learn from people like, like a Colin Kaepernick. And I'm not talking about his commentary on civil religion, although that's a valuable conversation to have. What I want to talk with you about is a willingness and an ability to step into a place and get a whole lot of mess on you and stand in a place of tension. I feel like you and I have been conditioned in the American church in the last while to sort of believe that if God, if there's a moment of tension or something isn't going right or we're not at a sense of peace, that God must not be in it. And yet Jesus' command and his instructions and his stories tell us so often that the path of a discipleship is not one that always finds resolution, that maybe, just maybe, discipleship is actually to be able to stand in the place of tension. Our president articulated that in a convocation address, talking about what it means to be in the world and not of the world, and how we're trying to ride that knife's edge and stand in that place, how we're learning to try to do that well. But watch out, because we all fall prone to wanting to create Twitter, our Twitter worlds in our own image, our social media worlds in our own image, where they just become our own echo chamber built by the walls of the people who look like us, reflecting our own voices back at us. And we learn nothing because we haven't learned how to stand in the place of tension. We come up with easy solves like cutting the swooshes off of our socks or burning shoes or throwing them out. Not thinking long and hard about the more difficult conversations about, do I even care up until this moment who made this article of clothing, how much they were paid, the conditions that their family lives in? 
Are those of greater concern to me? Do I dare even ask the questions that I don't even know how to answer? Or am I opting for an ignorance is bliss approach to everything? Jesus came to break down binaries and polarities. To have everybody, wherever they sit on the political spectrum, to be able to look at any single face that is made in his image and see exactly that, a reflection of him. Whether you like or whether you don't, call him Kaepernick. Can you do that? Can you do it with whoever evokes anger and rage and frustration in you? I love it when the Gospel of John kicks off by chapter 3. Jesus is in the house with one of the leaders of the country, Nicodemus, and he's having a conversation with him. And then the very next day, he's in a con- or the very next chapter, he's in a conversation with a Samaritan woman at the well. And Jesus is just like traversing all of these social constructed categories of socioeconomic differences, of national, national differences, ethnic differences, religious differences, and he finds a home in any one of those. And Jesus shows us time and time again that presence does not mean to condemn or to condone. It just simply means presence. And can we as followers of Jesus learn how to be able to live in a place that has ministry mess all over us? You see, the word becomes flesh in order to take up residence at the intersection of hurt and hope and then asks if we will do the same. And I'm not sure today that we're willing to. Some of us here have our greatest ambitions in life. We're choosing majors. We're picking our career trajectories and where we're headed in life, trying to find the path of least resistance, trying to avoid every place of tension. We shut off the voices around us because we want to sit in a place where we don't have to deal with that. But the incarnation shows us, if nothing else, that God's movement is into hurt and with hope. And so can we resist these instantaneous gut reactions that we've been culturally conditioned to create that just say, I like them, I don't like them. Yes or no, black or white, left or right, blue or red. From the first chapter of John, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. All week long, I've been reading these verses to different people and asking them what they see in it. And the diversity of God himself is reflected in his image bearers and the different answers that I hear. One of my favorites this week is, after this settled into them a little bit, the reading of these, somebody said to me, actually, I no longer believe that the turning of water into wine is the first miracle in the book of John because God himself gave up his place in order to be here. And that, that's the first miracle of this story. He came to be with me. 
Somebody else said, if this is the same John, right, who was an apostle walking along and now recounts this story looking backwards in time, he's telling a story of a God who became so incarnational, he became his best friend, literally, and walked beside him and he reclined at his chest. And then tells us in the gospel how to do the same, how to make our home there. But we see in this text, too, that sin has a blinding effect. That the created is saying back to the creator when he shows up in the moment, they can't even recognize him. They can't see him. They want, there's part that wants to reject him. Sin is a powerfully deceptive force. And it comes to us today in forms of propaganda that wants to demonize the other. Whatever stereotype represents something that you fear or loathe in this world. It wants you to strip him, her, them, of their humanity and of their image bearing. And so God in his infinite wisdom comes to us in one giant episode of Undercover Boss. Have you seen this show? Do you know the premise? Where the boss gets dressed up and goes in and then acts like he's one of the employees only to have a moment of great reveal. In that, everybody can see, oh my goodness, it's the CEO of this multi-billion dollar corporation. And they change their view of him and he changes their view of them. And in one giant cosmic episode of Undercover God, he comes and walks beside us so we might see differently. Except so often when the mask is pulled back, we, we, our sin has blinded us so bad we can't even recognize him. The Pharisees, those who had scripture, memorized every prophecy about him, memorized, and they couldn't see him for what he was. And I'm so afraid that you and I don't see God for who he is when he shows up among us. Whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. I think it's the same John who wrote this gospel that wrote the book of Revelation. And I'll never get over figuring out last fall going through that book with you. This 41-time command throughout the book of look, look again, look again. John's telling everybody, don't look at what you think you see. Look at what's behind it. The command holds true in our own culture and in our own time. In the middle of your hurts and in all of Satan's deceptive lies. You see, if we don't recognize him, we won't recognize ourselves. If we don't know what God looks like, how can we recognize the image of God in ourselves or anybody else around us? I'll read you this passage again, this time from a different version. Maybe our eyes widen a little bit or we see something we didn't see before. Look, John says. The life light was the real thing. Every person entering life, he brings into light. He was in the world, and the world was there through him. And yet the world didn't even notice. He came to his own people, but they didn't want him. But whoever did want him, who believed he was who he claimed and would do what he said, he made to be their true selves, their children of God selves. These are the God begotten, not flesh begotten, not sex begotten. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. 
We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. The word became flesh and blood and got ministry mess on him. The word became flesh and blood and went to parties and hung out with people that everybody else talked about. And he became the center point of rumors and stories. The word became flesh and blood and destroyed stereotypes. The word became flesh and blood and broke through every barrier that sinful human eyes had had spent history creating between genders and classes, nations. Can we become the incarnation of the incarnation as we're told? Can we, like God, move into the neighborhood? The neighborhood where we learn to love every neighbor as ourself. In convocation, the president put this picture up. We were all asked to talk to somebody beside us about what we saw in it. This Scott Mutter pick. And I couldn't decide whether it was a critique of the church because the church pews were all empty or whether it was a compliment to the church because the church pews were all empty and the streets are full. Is this a picture of people learning to take up residence at the intersection of hurt and hope? As the Great Commission hangs in a banner over empty pews, a statement of sending and of commissioning On Monday, Francis Sue stood on this stage and told us that the mark of a just society is how it treats its most vulnerable members. Perhaps the mark of a follower of Jesus is the same. The question is, do we have eyes to see it? A heart open to receive it? David Brown said it like this, that the footsteps of God always lead your neighbor in need. When I saw this t-shirt and I was reading this passage and took a break, I was flipping through online, I thought, I have to have that. That's like a great exegesis of this text. The late Billy Graham once said, it's God's job to judge, the Holy Spirit's to convict, and my job to love. That puts our categories pretty clear. See, the church today is mistaken that if you get a little bit of ministry mess on you, it, people might confuse that with you. But the incarnation, the incarnation demonstrated for us again and again and again that presence does not mean either condemnation or condoning. It just means presence. Can you be present with everybody in this list? In the way that the incarnation is? In the way that you and I have to be, if we're really to get the center of this gospel. Are you shooting and aiming for your life to live at the intersection of hurt and hope? But I want to show you something else about this text. 
I loved going back through it and realizing that so often I come to texts and I feel convicted by them. You, f- you feel nudged, right? You feel pushed forward. You feel called to do something, and there is that call already within this. A replication that we're supposed to live out of the incarnation. But it's not just for the other. Only God in His infinite wisdom would give us every single law in Scripture that's actually for our own flourishing as well as for everybody else's. And that when you and I move beyond ourselves, we actually become more alive ourselves. Because whoever did want him, whoever believed he was who he claimed and would do what he said, he made to be their true selves. I love that line. Who doesn't long inside of them to become their true selves, to become the closest to what God intended when he put you together? Every little bit of you, every desire, every longing. I want to be what God created me to be. You see, my point as a follower of Christ is not to get to heaven when I die, but it's actually to see how much of heaven I can enact in the people in the world around me already now. Is this not how Jesus taught us to pray? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, I want to see heaven break in now. Make my life a platform for that. So all the things that the incarnation did, I want to see happen in my own life. I want to give voice to it. I want to give presence to it. I want that to be me. I want to come alive like that. He made to be their true selves. And then he tells them to go out and live like that. Augustine said it like this, God is more near to me than I am to myself. God's commands for you to go out beyond yourself are actually more for you than maybe anything else. Maybe you come more alive in that than anything else. I think that's actually what worship does for us. One of the things I love about when you get together in worship you ever have it when you, when you stare into a light so long that you look away from the light and you can't see anything but the light, it's still there? I think worship is supposed to have that effect on our heart. That you stare into the heart of God long enough that when you walk away from it, you can't help but keep seeing it everywhere. But I'm a terribly forgetful person, so I need to keep coming back before God again and again and again. And he keeps blinding my eyes to the love manifested in the sun that shows me his true character, and then I start to see it on top of people when I look at them, like staring into these blinding lights and looking at you and not being able to see anything other than the light. In the same way I'm supposed to stare into the heart of the Father and then come back and look at the world and not be able to see anything, but see it through his heart, his love, his sacrifice. Two things I've been doing this year. Every, every, year, I have, um, every year I have a prayer that I pray every single morning, and every year it's a different one. I asked God what to pray this year. It came from a conversation I was having with my children this summer. My wife was playing a game with them when we were out on a road trip, and she asked them, if you could have any superpower in the world, what would it be? And I thought about it for a long time, and I gave the obvious kind of flippant answers, and then came back to this prayer that I'm now praying every morning. God, I want to learn how to love perfectly. That's my prayer. And the second thing was I thought I'm going to start doing this by starting the first five minutes of every day praying for everything that isn't about me. Because I want a heart that's oriented outward because I'm trusting God when he says that these movements will not only save the world but save me from myself. That's the light that didn't just come into the world. It's the light that's coming into me. The light that shines into my darkness. And even though my darkness cannot understand it or overcome it, he can and he does. And he's enlightening me. 
we close in prayer and transition to a time of worship, praise team, will you come on back up and lead us into God's presence? We'll sing about his heart, his call, his move in our life. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for coming and dwelling among us. Thank you for moving into our neighborhood, into our lives. Thank you for upending our comfortability. And Lord, we're having such a hard time when we have the option to not live in tension and create safe worlds for ourselves or echo chambers for our own ideas. To know what it means in this cultural moment. To live in a world of hurt and be a presence of hope. Father, we need, we need to be able to see you. We need to know what it looks like to stare into your heart, to be refined into your image more fully, to learn how to come alive in you. Father, bless us with your presence. Or maybe better yet, just open our eyes to its reality already. And as we sing and as we worship and head into our day, may we stare into you so long and so hard that when we leave, we still have a hard time seeing anything else. Blind us with your love. In Jesus' name, amen.